0: We're worthless for any good deed. Titus chapter 1, 16, Paul writes this, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Worthless for any good deed. I've been speaking in the context of, to y'all, which is to a group of believers that have come to church to learn about the fundamentals of the faith, to learn about theology in a systematic way. But notice how chapter 1, verse 16 of Titus starts. They profess to know God. It also includes the audience of people that aren't, you know, just out in the world and living totally in their flesh, but also to the audience of anybody that might even, hey, I like to go to church. Ages 16 to 19 for me was that. I liked the youth group. The kids were nice. I was a band kid, and I was used to nice kids, because non-band kids aren't nice, is what I just said, if you want to just infer it and go, man. Anyway, I I had a good experience of people going through it, and it it was great, so I went to church, and hey, there's another group of kids that I want to be like, and for three years, I served in that youth group. I went on missions trips. I played keyboard for them, and I feel bad about that, because I wasn't a believer. People can think they are. They can profess to know God. So an application point to examine your hearts. Where are you with Christ? Where are you in your obedience? Where are you in your growing? Because the rest of Titus chapter 1, 16 says, this is how you'll know them. It says by their deeds, they deny him. So if you think, hey, I like going to church, but then the rest of the, you know, every other minute of every other day is like, my deeds are not what God would want me to do. That is a big cautionary flag for you. Dig deep into that. Seek counsel Call friends that are, you know are believers and walking differently than you and, and pray and repent of your sin and pursue Christ through his word. Worthless for any good deed. So what does this mean for humanity? As we went through that list, as you see those six things, how deep does this sin problem go? Is there some of us that's good? Y'all have heard the argument, it's a lie, that man is basically good? I hear that all the time at work. And so I try to flip it. It's like, man, if we're basically good, with what I need a job, I'm a professional coach, consultant to leaders to grow them in their skills. If they were basically good, I would not have a job. And you would be really good at yours. Yeah, we're not basically good. All of our lives are tainted. Our condition before God is totally Depraved. In summary, we can look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have missed by a long shot the goal. So we've all sinned. So let's look at a definition of sin very quickly. It's on the slides there for you, right? Anything, anything contrary to God in thought, in word, or in deed. By thought, that Matthew 5, 28, 27, 28 is an example of the lust in our hearts. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There's an act you shouldn't do. But Jesus clears it up for them and says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In his heart. It's not your actions. It's what's inside. What inside speaks. Oh, speaking is speaking. Words, Colossians 3, 8 also shows us our sin. It says, but now you also put them all aside. Ranger. Ranger. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And you see the progression. We studied this. Don't, get, don't tell Dusty if you forgot. We studied this. It progresses. Anger, wrath, malice, those are inside. Those are emotional. Those are boiling up within you to where it spills out from you, out of your mouth, into what? Into slander and abusive speech. That's who we are. Also, in our deeds, deeds of commission, which are things that you overtly do to break God's law. 1 John 3 4 says, Everyone who practices sin, practice, does continuously, habitually, without without repentance, practices sin, also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So there's people that overtly break God's law, and they have no problem with it. There's also deeds of omission. This is the killer. When you know the right thing to do and you still don't do it. When you know the right thing to do and you still don't do it. James chapter 4.17 says it well, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that is sin. So our condition is total depravity. Before God we are sinners. And because we are totally depraved, every aspect of our lives... is tainted by sin, then there are consequences. I do want to make a side note there. Total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. There's an opportunity to praise the Lord. As we get into our systematic theology study and study the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll look at His restraining work towards sin in creation. He holds us back from being as bad as we could be, which is the kindness of God. But it does mean that every aspect of our lives is tainted. So we still face these consequences of our condition. You can see there are two that we're going to go into. Enslavery to sin and enmity with God. John 8.44 talks about enslavery to sin. It says, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So what does it mean to be this slave of sin, to be chained to sin, to not be able to let go? It means we can't change ourselves. Even if you wanted to, you can't. Romans 5, 6 says, For we were still helpless at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. For we were still helpless. We were helpless. We look at Ephesians 2, chapter 1. You're dead in your trespasses. We can't change unless God calls us. It also means we're subject to Satan's power in this world. And this we I'm talking about is unbelievers. Unbelievers. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. God has granted that. God's not out of control. He's granted that. Again, making this dark backdrop for Jesus Christ's glory to shine upon. And we see our nature because of that. Human, humanity's sinful nature because of that. In John chapter 8, 42 to 44, it says, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. That's right. If we had that relationship with God, that would be true, but we don't. It continues in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That is a description of human nature. That's who we are. The second consequence, because that's who we are, is our enmity with God, an enemy of God. And this hits straight between the eyes, too. This is James chapter 4, verses 4. It says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Warning, Christian, believer, examine your life. I struggle with this. You struggle with this. We flirt with that line of the world and the desires of the world because there's a level of attraction towards that. And we still have our flesh which makes us desire sinful things. Not as a slave anymore. We'll get to that. But it's there. We have to actively look out And beware and call aside. That is friendship with the world. I am just going to turn left and go way away from that. Or right. Either one's fine. But friendship of the world makes yourself an enemy of God. And there are consequences to being an enemy of God. A couple. Physical death. We saw that with Adam and Eve and the curse of sin. Physical death happens. Romans 6.23a says, For the wages of sin is death. But the really scary one is when Christ comes to finally judge, and this is really, I, I, the phrase "really scary" does no justice to how fearful this should make anyone. But it's eternal separation from God. Second Thessalonians one nine says this really clearly. It says these, the human humanity that is unredeemed, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Well, what is that? Oh, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So. Chris did a really good job of some omni-questions last week. Omni. All. One of them is an attribute of God, which is omnipresent. Omnipresent. You made it. Omnipresent. But 2 Thessalonians 1.9 just said that away from the presence of the Lord. How do we reconcile and connect those two dots? Away from the presence of the Lord in a judgmental sense is away from the goodness of God as away from the good relationship that he will have with those that he's redeemed. All they know is a judgmental relationship where there is wrath being poured out, where Scripture describes it as outer darkness and flames, where there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth. They still see the presence of God, but they only know him one way. They only know him one way. So, will God tolerate sin? No. No. 50-50 50-50 shot. Nailed it. No. He will not tolerate sin. Yeah. You know, he will not tolerate sin. Uh, let me, a, a verse, I don't know if I put it on a slide, and that's my bad, is Galatians 3.10. It says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And then a small group, partial to me, small group memory verse, James 2.10. I'll say it for you, but you know it. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one part of it, one point. He has become guilty of all. Y'all are crushing this. Guilty of all. Every single bit of it. All is tainted. All is in that condition of total depravity and all of humanity faces the consequences. We really have a clear picture, hopefully, of man said in the totality of humanity sense. Of all of humanity before God. And hopefully that sets up the need as a very bar- dark backdrop for what we're going with is what's the, then, then what did it take Christ? What was the cost of becoming redeemed? And that's where we're going next. We're going to look at four aspects of, co- of the cost of Christ's work the need for a blood sacrifice, Christ's humiliation, the crucifixion. And what was the judgment of God at the cross? So let's keep rolling. The need for a blood sacrifice. The need for blood sacrifice. God declared in the Old Testament, as a future looking forward, it's going to take blood to atone for the forgiveness of sins. That's going to happen. This so Leviticus 17.11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The writer of Hebrews in chapter nine twenty two says it very clearly. It says, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It takes blood to forgive sins, but it couldn't be any blood. The blood of an animal has nothing to give towards paying off sin. It can't be your blood. As we've seen, you're tainted. Your blood can't do it either. Even if from right now you were perfect for the rest of your life, you still have your sin nature to deal with and all of your past deeds. It can't just be any blood that could do it. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a picture pointing forwards to what is this final sacrifice going to be. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, it lays it out very clearly. The author of Hebrews does. It says, For the law, since it was only, has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? It breaks. The Old Testament sacrificial system breaks. But he continues in verse 3, he says, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, continuing to point them towards God, which is where they can only have salvation. Verse four says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We must have a, per- and then just my thoughts, we have to have a perfect sacrifice. We have to have one. And praise the Lord we do. Praise the Lord we do in Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, and spotless, the blood of Christ. And that was the last and final one. Hebrews 10 continues that argument in verses 12 to 14, where he says, But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's a reason to say amen. That's a reason to praise the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's keep diving into this cost of Christ's work, and we'll look at his humiliation. His humiliation. Now, y'all studied this word kenosis. Chris is in the back. He's taking notes. Who knows the definition of kenosis? It means emptying. It's in parentheses on the slide. Sorry, you couldn't write fast enough. Who didn't know it. It means emptying. So Christ emptied himself. So how did he empty it? We're going to go review Philippians 2 again. The passage on the emptying of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, chapter 5 to 8. Listen to how he emptied himself. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. It says in verse 6, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, Grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took on the form of a slave. He took on the form of a man in appearance as a man. He took on flesh. The very God of the universe, completely holy, completely set apart, came to earth and put on the very flesh that has a sin nature in it. Now, because of the way he came into his flesh, he didn't have an original sin nature. Because, uh, uh, we'll probably study that. I'm not going to go there. But he studied, he, I just want to jump ahead. But this is who he was as he took on flesh. Isaiah 53, 2-3 describes him. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not even esteem him. The rest of the world didn't get it. He didn't come in chariots and horses blowing trumpets saying, I'm the king. He looked like a person that as people would walk by him, wouldn't give him a second glance. and probably wouldn't give him a first glance just not even esteemed by humanity. That's how low, how much Christ emptied himself. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That exchange doesn't do it justice. But yes, those are opposite extremes, right? Rich, poor, those are opposites. And that is the emptying that took place. That is the emptying Specifically, he gave up his heavenly glory. He set it aside. He emptied it. And John chapter 17, verse 5 says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We've seen that glory. We've seen that glory. Glory showed it to three people. Uh, glory. Jesus showed it to three people on earth at the transfiguration. And they saw it and they fell down. But he set it aside. He set it aside in his earthly ministry. He gave up his independent authority. He became a slave. Matthew 26, verse 39 says this, and he went a little beyond them and fell to his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, you see the permission? If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And John fourteen or twelve forty-nine says, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. He became totally dependent. Modeling our dependence on the Father. And he also set aside his favorable relationship with the Father, not only through death, but through death on a cross. When we cover the judgment of God at the cross, you will see that severing of that relationship. So why did he have to take on flesh? Why did he have to empty himself and take on flesh? Isaiah 53.12 answers this because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. If he didn't do it, if he didn't take on and become sin on our behalf in his flesh, we would have no hope. The only way we have hope is because this is what he did. This is what he did. Let's look at the third aspect of his humiliation, which is, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. We're going to go to the third aspect of who Jesus Christ is and his work, and that's the crucifixion. That's the crucifixion. So this is going to be a narrative or a history of what everything took part leading up to it, and we need to see it like this because we need to see and be reacquainted with all he went through. Not only was he humbled, not only did those aspects of giving up his heavenly glory, his independent authority, and his relationship with God the Father as he died on the cross— but we need to really get a sense of what took place as it led up to it. So when we look at the crucifixion, you can see that there's a few things we're going to look at as events go, right, as events go. One we just looked at in uh, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 26, but I'll, I'll read it out of Luke chapter 22, which is his agony as he saw it coming, verses 41 to 44. It says, And he withdrew from them a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done." Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down upon the ground. This is the night before, or maybe early morning before. And even being strengthened by an angel from heaven, the next statement is still in agony. He knew what was coming. He had chosen all of this. But still, knowing that it's an imminent action, he was in agony, praying very fervently. And we see what he was praying. To be obedient, to be dependent, to be to fulfill the act that he wanted to do. Not take it away. He says that because he says, this is such a large thing. This is going to be so painful. I can't imagine the cost of this. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. Consider that. Consider the cost. Consider the value that comes from this agony that Christ goes through. But we also see and build up this idea that didn't, why did it have to be this way? Because of our sin, his arrest, Matthew 26, 50 to 58, I won't read all these sections. I don't have time to do it. But it had to happen this way. It had to. Christ says in there, for scriptural to be fulfilled, they had to arrest him. He even tells his disciples in that passage that if I wanted to get out of this, I could call 12 legions of angels from heaven and they would come and they would obey me and this would be done. But it had to be this way. It had to happen. And then all of his followers stuck around and defended him. No, that is not what happened. It says his people left him and fled. He was left alone. He was left alone. This is how humanity treats the king of kings. This is how you would treat him if you were there and you weren't a believer. We look at his trial in Matthew 26, 59 to 68, a couple notes from there. It starts with a litany of false testimonies that contradict themselves and don't even get it straight. But yet they don't stop and go, oh, obviously he's innocent, so let's stop. We have a whole bunch of liars here. We're just going to, sorry about wasting your time in the early morning. No, they keep going. He's still innocent. But in verse 64, they say one true thing. They ask him, if he have the, if the high priest asks him, are you the son of God and will attain your rightful place in glory? He asks him that. He says, it is as you say. It's the one thing that Christ agreed with. It's the one thing he said. Because that's the one thing they said that was accurate. And because of that, they label him a blasphemer. Because he told the truth. He acknowledged the truth. He's a blasphemer. Everything is wrong about this. And they beat him and they slap him and they call him names and they say, if you're God, you'll know who's doing this. And they spit on him. Then he goes to Pilate. In Matthew chapter 27, 11 to 26, where Pilate asks him again, a true question. Are you the king of the Jews, as they say? And he says, it is as you say. Pilate asks him, why aren't you defending yourself? He says, nothing. Nothing. Pilate knows he's innocent. He knows the Jews. He he didn't just walk in on the scene and go, what am I dealing with? He knows what's happening. But because man is going to fail Jesus again, and because this had to happen, Pilate, knowing full well that Jesus is innocent, yet feared the people and releases someone just not quite as good as Jesus. No, no. The exact opposite. It's all put together so that you see this had to happen and the cost is huge. They released Barabbas, a known murderer, insurrectionist. They had no reason to be released. And in comparison to Christ's value and Barabbas' value in his life, they're opposites. You can't get any further apart. In his scourging, from there, he's given back to the Roman cohort where they strip him down, put him in a robe, Make a crown of thorns, shove it on his head, and they mock him as king. They mock him as king, and they beat him with not just a whip, but a whip with pieces of glass and bone and stone, and it was just designed to be terrible. And I can't imagine. I don't want to even think anymore about that. But that's what they did to the king of the world, the king of kings. It's horrendous. Again, had to happen because of our sin. And then we get to his crucifixion, the actual crucifixion. Matthew 27 to 32 to 37 recounts this. He's being crucified. They offer him wine to dull the pain, and he refuses. He refuses because he needs to be all there. They hang him on the cross. They divide up his garments. The two crucified with him mock him and curse him and above him piece of wood they say the right thing but they do the wrong it says jesus christ the king of the jews it had to happen it had to happen we see his last words in john chapter 19 26 to 30 where he assigns john the responsibility of taking care of his mother And he says, it is finished. In verse 30, it's finished. What are some of the events that took place right after he said that? How did the physics of the world react to this event? People were resurrected. That never happens. People were resurrected. Darkness in the middle of the day also doesn't happen pardon me, the veil was torn because someone went just like from the bottom and it's really high, got a ladder and tore it physically the way... It. No! Top to bottom! This thing's caught me. Can't turn my head. So. Yes, those are the things that took place. Those are the things that took place because something unworldly just took place and will never ever happen like that again. The sacrifice was finished. We looked at 1 Peter 3.18 already. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. See that exchange? The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Praise the Lord. To fully grasp this cost, we have to look at one last aspect of it, which is going deep into the judgment of actually what took place deep into that judgment. and 2 Corinthians 5.21, also a good verse to have memorized, says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin. You see that transfer? Christ is sinless. Even in his flesh, Christ is sinless, not even once. But in the great exchange, in the substitutionary atonement, for us to have redemption, he had to become sin. Just imagine that. You can't imagine what being holy God is like. You can't because we have finite minds. But do your best and then imagine I have to take on sin, the very thing that I hate. And in his role as redeemer, as substitutionary atoner, he became sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. And not only did he take on our sin, but he gave us his righteousness. You see the flip? It's not just a halfway, hey, I got their sin. But then the rest of their lives, it's on their own. He gave us his righteousness too. The creator and the savior of the world, very God of very God, yet man in the flesh, fullness of deity dwelling in him as we looked in Colossians 2, became for my and yours, on every believer's behalf, redeemer. He bore our sins. First Peter 2.24 says, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. I, if you were able to catch the MacArthur sermon that's attached to this chapter He hits that by the wounds you were healed part. And he salves, if you ever had any concerns, like, well, there's a lot of people that are still sick today. So did it happen? Did it not happen? And it was really, I was like, thank you for people that study and and, and give us a lot of information because your spiritual wounds, yes, healed. When will all of our wounds be healed? When we have glorified bodies, when Christ comes again. So there's a future aspect to that as well but in his body representing all flesh he bore all of the sins they were laid on him Isaiah 53 6 but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him the iniquity of us all not just the iniquity of a piece of you or iniquity of one of you or iniquity of a few of you all of your iniquity of all of us at that moment at that moment it's not random it's planned it's purposeful to accomplish redemption, Jesus took all of it, past, present, future, and paid it. Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render him as a guilt offering. This act satisfied and pleased the God of heaven, the Father in heaven. Not because of some malicious, I want, you know, because the plan from eternity past was to redeem humanity. And this fulfilled it, and this fulfilled it. And then here's the hardest part of it all. Christ was forsaken by his Father. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translates, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsake means to turn away from to let go, to I'm not going to help you anymore. Our relationship is severed. To be clear, this did not break the Trinity. But for Christ and His flesh, still fully God, but for Christ and His flesh, this represented that breaking of a relationship where all Christ knew in His flesh was all of the wrath of righteous God being poured out on Him for us At that moment, the full weight of everything that a righteous and holy God has to deliver towards sinners, where the weeping of gnashing and teeth and the outer darkness, that broken relationship away from the presence of God and only knowing his wrath. That's what Jesus just took on for you and just took on for me. He had to do this in order to be the one and only redeeming sacrifice for sin once for all. He had to do it. And he wanted to do it. This is the dark part. And then the brilliance of Christ's glory and how we should see it every day. And I've summarized three enduring truths from this that I want you to take away. One, we've mentioned already, examine yourselves for sin as believers and repent. Ask yourself, as Tim Cantrell mentioned when he was here, Wendell's son passed from South Africa, he said, dwell enough on the cross of Christ until your heart melts, until your heart melts. If you're not a believer here, you've seen this exchange, like I have not participated in that. Then follow up with someone that you know here or ask someone to help you identify Christ as your Savior. What is repentance? And to walk through the fact that you have a Savior from sin. Secondly, praise and worship God. Praise and worship Christ as your Savior. We're about to go into worship service. Let it all out, but don't stop there. Continue to dwell on this and just every morning wake up and when your mind is idle, go, what should I think about? This is a good one. And dwell And praise and worship God. Meditate on this all the time. It will help with your battle towards sin. It will help with any struggle that you have because it's right and it's good to dwell on this. And then, lastly, renew your prioritization and passion to share this story. Let this renew it for you to give this same reality to others. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, you are so good. And we love you so much. We can't express the amount of love that you deserve as we looked at this work of your Son, Jesus Christ, at our need for a Savior because of our total depravity, because of our sin, how everything is tainted. And we can't praise you enough for the work, the humiliation, the crucifixion, the final righteous payment of sin that Christ did on our behalf. But we do thank you, and we do praise you. Lord, as we transition into worship, take this and continue to build us up, to continue to receive all the glory that we can muster to give. And Lord, as we walk out of here, give us a renewed appreciation, a renewed desire, a renewed hunger for your word to know you and then to be able to express you to others in our lives and to walk obediently to you, praising you all the time because of what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name in.